We have just released issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the ascent to the divine. We'll be looking at the ancient practice of theurgy. My guest is Danny Newman, who is the author of Alchemically Stoned, The Psychedelic Secret of Freemasonry, Angels in Vermilion, The Philosopher's Stone from D to DMT, and most recently, Theurgy in Theory and Practice, The Mysteries of the Ascent to the Divine. This is our second interview, and I'd like to encourage those of you who haven't seen it to check out our first interview on the topic of alchemy and theogens and the esoteric. I'm linking to it now in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. Danny lives in the state of Mississippi, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Danny. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. We're going to be talking about theurgy, and it's a term I think that's often used today to refer to conventional religious services, like the, the Catholic Mass would be, I think, an example of theurgy. But uh, in your book, you really are focusing in on the ancient world, and in particular, the, the Neoplatonists and all of the related esoteric movements of that era. That's right. Mm -hmm. With the Mass, uh, and uh, what in orthodoxy they call the divine liturgy. Liturgy and theurgy, there's clearly a, a similarity in those terms. Uh, liturgy means public work. So it implies sort of God's work with the people, whereas theurgy means, it can mean the work of one man with the gods. So one tends to be a public act and the other tends to be a very private act. And so we're talking about the private act primarily today. And I guess it's fair to say that in ancient Greek culture, going back to the earliest of the Greek poets and philosophers, there there was an element of theurgy and uh, just about, well, I would say it was central to who they were and what they did. Sure. Yeah, they, they didn't call it that back then. In the, in the pre-Socratic days, the closest thing you would encounter is what's called goetia, or what you'll hear modern practitioners call goetia. Um, but the, the, the spirit was certainly present, and, and that spirit is largely constituted by what we would call soul flight, um, shamanic, very common in shamanic literature and shamanic practice. But in the pre-Socratic days, that orientation, the orientation of that soul flight was catabatic. They would go down into the underworld. And this would be represented by um, retreat to caves, for example. Pythagoras was said to have spent time in caves. Epimenides, um, 
the same, Parmenides. He went into the underworld and met this goddess who gave him divine wisdom that he brought back and, and kind of changed the the pivot on which the world turned. And the modern philosophers will say that he is the father of logic. Um, and it's hard to kind of wrap, wrap your head around that. How, how do you today we think an act is either logical or it's not logical but prior to parmenides bringing this new mode of living to the world it seems like the closest thing to logic would have been in what myth am i participating and how how well do i fit to this mythic kind of being but by the time we get to plato that orientation changes and it ma mainly changes because he allegorizes Hades and says that when we incarnated into this body, that that is the descent to Hades, the fall from a purely divine being to a physical manifested being. That's what he says Hades is the allegory for. So once that happens, once that sets in, there's nowhere to go but up. And soul flight then begins to take the form of flights through the various levels of the heavens and into the realms of the gods and and perhaps even all the way to the one, the monad. It actually seems somewhat um, resonant with the Hebrew idea of a Merkaba mysticism rising in a chariot through the uh, celestial f uh, spheres to get to the highest heaven. That's right. It's very close. And, and in fact, I'm sure you're familiar with Plato's myth of the chariot and the soul as a, a charioteer. The word used there is okima or ochima. You'll hear different pronunciations of it, but essentially okima, which means uh, um, a chariot. And Merkaba is a throne chariot. So b before Merkaba mysticism appeared in Judaism, they had throne mysticism, where they would uh, attempt to approach the throne of God. Well, eventually this throne became in the center of uh, a, a chariot. And it's, it's largely speculated that this innovation happened due to the exile of the Jews and their encounter with this Greek model that already existed. In fact, the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon, which would be sort of the inheritor of the Sumerian and the Chaldean cultures. And I know that at least the myths associated with theurgy often refer to the Chaldean oracles as, as the source of this form of mysticism. That's right. The, the, the Chaldean oracles, as such, are not Chaldean. They're, they're, they are largely involved in this, this Greek attempt to connect with the gods and ascend, and to, like, like we said earlier, through the levels of the heavens. But it, the Chaldean oracles were received in the second century after Christ. And that's where we get the word theurgy, which itself, again, is a combination of two words, one meaning the gods, the other meaning to work. Um, and this was brought about by a father-son team of magicians, we might call them, or prior to the use of, of 
their their use of the word theurgy, they might have been called um, practitioners of Goetia, just like we mentioned a moment ago. But they were a father-son team of magicians, both named Julian, so they're known as the Giuliani, not to be confused with Emperor Julian of the of near the same era. Um, and what they did was in this form of much like what we see with John D and Edward Kelly, where we have one who is doing the invocations and the prayers, and we have another who is either able to see these spirits or um, interact with them somehow. With the Giuliani, we have one person, likely the father, making these calls, making these invocations, largely to Apollo and Hecate. And these are important because these are the deities primarily associated with oracles, with oracular activity. And what the theurgists claim, the Neoplatonists who practice theurgy, is that what showed up for them, in fact, was the spirit of Plato. And Plato became the mouthpiece for Apollo and Hecate. And everything that was said was written down by them. And that's that's how the Chaldean oracles resulted. But it, it largely became what has been called, uh, if there is going to be such a thing, the Bible of the Neoplatonists. And I gather uh, that the Chaldean oracles, I gather from your book, the, the, the Chaldean oracles are written uh, in a style that is uh, very evocative of Homer in terms of the meter, in, in terms of uh, the phraseology. Uh, in, in fact, one might have to say in a, in a very studied fashion. Absolutely. Just like with Parmenides and Empedocles and Xenophanes, these, these philosopher poets, the Chaldean oracles were composed in dactylic hexameter and in ancient Homeric Greek. Uh, so there, there has always been this really tight connection with Homer. And that was the, the real focus of the book. And, and what, what I felt like was really worth exploring and teasing out was why the Neoplatonists were so consistent in projecting or finding theurgy in Homeric literature, because obviously the word didn't even exist at the time of Homer. But I, th I thought, it, why not take them at their word and, and really see what they're seeing and explore it this way? And, and I found it to be incredibly eye-opening. Especially because I gather that the mainstream scholarly opinion is that this tradition of theurgy, which became prominent with the Neoplatonists, was something of an amalgamation of Greek philosophy and, and the various Eastern religious traditions. And, and I think these scholars tended to take the, the Chaldean oracles as suggestive of a, some, some Eastern uh, religious form of mysticism and, and not Greek. That's right. Yeah. And, and there's no question that there was some interaction between the East in Greece. Uh, we see this, for example, in, in the philosopher Pyrrho, who is very clearly, he, he has been exposed to Buddhism. His ideas, his uh, concepts line up perfectly with their Buddhist counterparts. But in the case of 
theurgy, the larger influences from the wet, from excuse me, from the north, and that's specifically what they said in their writings was that this is this has more to do with what they called the hyperborean north, and by hyperborean, Boreas was the god of the northern wind. So hyperboreas just means the north beyond the north, a long ways away. And when we look close, the, the near north, we, we see the Thracians, the Scythians, and these, these groups were very shamanic. They still, what is left of them still has very shamanic overtones. But if we go even further, we end up in Siberia and Mongolia. And the one of the earliest pre-Socratic philosophers, Abaris, Abaris the Hyperborean, he's known as, um, Peter Kingsley places him in Mongolia, that he came from Mongolia to Greece in order to search out another avatar of Apollo, which he also believed himself to be. And uh, uh, um, Aristeus is another one that's that's believed to have been from that same region. But when when we look at Siberia, the first thing that comes to mind or should come to mind is shamanism. The word shaman itself comes from the Tungustic people in Siberia. So largely what we know of shamanism comes from their practice. And when we compare the two, this this concept of soul flight immediately starts to make sense because prior to this in in early greek times the the belief was that the soul wasn't the true self you you are your true self and when you die you leave behind a shade which is kind of a an echo that spends its time the rest of its time in hades until it eventually can just peter out it's it gets less and less strong but all of a sudden around plato we get this clear picture of the soul as the very essence of one's being one's thoughts one's emotions and this essence has the capacity to leave the body in the form of an animal which you We've, we see in, even in Egypt, where the, the soul leaves in the form of the Ba, this, this bir bird with the face of the, the deceased. And this, this, it, this picture only makes sense uh, when we look to the, the, the Hyperborean region, the, the north beyond the north in Siberia, where, where the shamans there will do practices very similar to what the theurgists were doing, leave their body in the form of a, a bird, a horse, and travel up or down on this, this axis, um, the axis of the world, which is a, a very common concept that shows up in anthropology and archaeology. It's clear that it was very widespread, but this is kind of the, the, the pole that they travel up or down on. And we see it in, in theurgy. We see it in, um, there's a group of texts called the Greek Magical Papyri that survives from uh, Alexandrian Egypt. And some of it might even go back earlier. Uh, but there are clear references to, for example, in the Mithras liturgy, where there is an ascent of a pole up to the 
constellation that exists above this pole, which for them was the 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 this bear, the bear constellation for the for the Chinese, I believe it was um, an ox, but it's it's a constellation that includes the North Star at the time that everything pivots on and moves around it. So even to become aware of this means they were aware of very aware of astrological phenomenon, and this is largely why the Chaldeans get the Chaldean oracles get this name and theorists are often referred to as Chaldeans because that's the home of, of where astrology began. So the minute anybody introduces the, this concept of astrology into their thinking and into their practice back then, they were pretty quickly labeled Chaldean. Well, you also mentioned Egypt. And, and the Egyptian traditions, and I am under the impression that uh, the Egyptians did have a real influence on the Greeks, even uh, as early as Pythagoras. That's right. Pythagoras spent time in Egypt. Plato is said to have spent time in Egypt. And uh, this concept, this whole notion has been largely kind of poo-pooed by current philosophers that and, and academics that like to say that it, they're just saying this, that they're just saying this to kind of make a connection with Egypt because it was so esteemed at the time. But uh, there's a great, great scholar. He passed away in 2010 named Algus Utzdevenis, and he wrote a book called uh, Philosophy as a Rite of Rebirth from Ancient Egypt to Neoplatonism. And he traces this thread unlike anything I've ever seen. If you finish that book, and you still think that there was no continuation from Egypt, Egypt to, to Greek philosophy, you didn't, you weren't paying attention. There, there was absolutely a connection. And he lays out more that I have trouble recalling right offhand, but numerous different Greek philosophers that either went to Egypt or claimed Egypt as the origin of what they were saying. At the same time, I'm under the impression that early philosophy in Greece was also influenced by the Persians. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the Persians influenced just about everybody once they started kind of spreading because they really, they really covered a lot of ground. One would have to say that theurgy, the idea of the ascent of the soul to the uh, realms of the divine, maybe even the idea of merging with the divine, uh, is, is almost a universal tradition. And uh, these things all really came together uh, in, in a fully formed version with the Neoplatonists. That's right. That's right. It seems like any culture that we really look closely at, if, if we have evidence of their prehistorical period, the early forms of worship, which we might identify as forms of shamanism, it's central to them all. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It, it certainly, uh, people have described the Egyptian religion with all the uh, gods with the animal heads as being very shamanic. That's a good point. Yeah. And of course, the word shaman. It may have existed in ancient Greece. They never said it. It wasn't recorded. The word they like to use was uh, yatromentea, which means healer, seer. Yatro is um, the the 
the the medicinal part of the healer and it was often applied to a group of people called the the root cutters that were preoccupied with using plants for both magic and for healing but that mantia um it comes from mantis which is this divine frenzy that the oracles would go into uh, before they could utter their prophecies but it's also central to Plato when he talks about the forms of divine madness and how that's that way of being is superior to its alternative, not having frenzy, being completely rational. Um, he, he gives four ways, which include uh, uh, poetry. They include uh, what, what's called telestique. And telestique is interesting because in our when we translate this to English in the texts, it's usually translated as initiation. But an initiation is just what it says, an, an initial stage of something, the beginning of a new state of being, um, a new way to live. But for them, telestique didn't mean the, the beginning of something. It meant the perfection of something, the end of a thing. So it, it's reached its its culmination, so to speak. So it, very different meaning than the way we think about it. We think of initiation as initiation rituals. Telestique involved rituals, but they didn't see it as a beginning. They saw it as a, as perfecting the being or the object that they were performing it on, because they would also perform it on statues in order to animate them. The statues for them, and, and when I say animate, I don't mean turning it into a mechanical contrivance, but filling it with the spirit of a deity or of a daemon, um, and and by which they could interact with their gods directly. I remember on uh, one occasion when I was a young man and I was visiting um, the museum in Los Angeles. It had a lot of ancient Greek sculptures, and I recall looking at one of those sculptures and I would swear it was breathing. I believe it. I believe it. There's one one philosopher, his name escapes me um, right now, it'll come to me, but he was said to have had the ability to know just by being in its presence whether a statue was animated. And he had the tendency of, of kind of going into a frenzy when he would encounter an animated statue. And uh, not too long ago, Wouter Hanegraaff, the the scholar at uh, Exeter, I believe, um, he gave a talk where he, he gave a lot of focus on statue animation and made it very clear that when these statues were interacted with, very often entheogenic compounds were employed in the form of incense, sometimes potions. So the, they very much could have seen a number of different actions performed by these statues and that they might have been seeing reality better than we see it. We, you know, you know how I think about entheogens. I do indeed. And uh, of course, I'm aware of a lot of current research, for example, in the area of psychic healing, where uh, gifted healers might 
engage. It's a little ritual, I guess, of, of charging the water and then giving the water to somebody as, as a healing remedy or people who go to seek the water at Lourdes. It would be another example where it does seem that through the power of concentration, individuals are able to uh, charge objects or it could be food or water in a, in a way that is noticeable and, and detectable by other people. There have been double blind studies in parapsychology where uh, people did a taste test with two pieces of chocolate, one which had been charged, one which had not been, and uh, people were able to tell the difference. I remember that study. I believe it, it, some of them even had uh, was it monks that were putting healing energy into some of them and they got actual results that if I recall correctly were better than placebo numbers uh, yeah I, I 100% believe in that way of thinking and, and Plotinus talks about it he, he's the father of Neoplatonism and it's also mentioned and the Corpus Hermeticum, the, the Hermetic writings, where they talk about animating a statue. And Plotinus says that it seemed to the ancients that the easiest way to, to capture something of, of a deity of, or of a soul, he says, is to make a contrivance, make what uh, Yamblichus calls a hypodokin, which is a, a perfect receptacle for that deity to reside in. And they, they had, their worldview was that everything is divine. Everything is participating in a certain God and all of those gods are participating in the one. So let's say we wanted to make a statue to Helios, to the sun God. Well, in this way of thinking, the world is composed of what what the Neoplatonists called uh, synthemata and symbola, which means tokens or signatures and symbols. But these aren't just correspondences. In, in, in magical modern magical traditions such as the Golden Dawn, when you're learning Kabbalah, for example, you're taught correspondences that gold corresponds to the sun, Tifereth corresponds to the sun, the number six corresponds to the sun. They don't, they're not, the Neoplatonists weren't thinking in terms of correspondences. They were thinking in terms of what we might call fractals, that, the, that gold is the sun manifested in the mineral world or the metal world, that uh, sunflowers and heliotrope are the sun manifested in the plant world, and, and roosters and lions are the sun manifested in the animal kingdom. And they would combine these in such a way, use parts from each one of them so that they could try and get as much of the sun as they could in one thing. And, and this would also be done under certain astrological conditions, the proper timings, astrological hours, planetary hours. And that, that, that's how they would animate a statue. And we don't think about it this way, but August Ustavini's does a great job of pointing out that that's what mummies are. When we when a mummy is used, we we have the 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 saying in Judaism, and it was true in Egypt that man is made in the image of of the highest God. What better way to make a statue to that God than to use the remains of a man? And they'd put special 
herbs in him that have largely been thought to just be um, simply for embalming him and dealing with the smell, you know, because they're per- perfumed herbs. But Ustavini says, no, they're, they're animating this deceased person into a statue of the god. And the final step was to enclose it in that coffin that had the face of the god and the, the symbols and the form of hieroglyphs of the god upon him. Uh, very, very, uh, very magical way of thinking that, that w- once, once you adopt that way of seeing the world, everything becomes divine. And we think about matter as most mystics think about matter as being lowest on the scale of, of holiness or sanctity. But even Aristotle made the point that was earlier elaborated by Pythagoras that we don't really know what matter is. It seems to collect and reflect the divine, but it's just as mysterious and unidentifiable as the spiritual phenomenon. So what better thing to use in the construction of these statues than that which is beyond comprehension, beyond explicability? Well, the animating of statues seems like a a, a fascinating ritual, but I gather it would only be one example of the kind of rituals that the Neoplatonists engaged in and that they, uh, in, in effect, uh, really fused the idea of uh, Platonic philosophy with ceremonial magic. Uh, and uh, you've done quite a bit of work, I gather, to uncover the specifics of their rituals. Well, you, you gather correctly. And this this is what brings us back to Homer. So when we get the theory for theurgy really laid out for us, is by Plotinus's student, Porphyry. And Porphyry wrote an esoteric commentary on, I believe it's book 13 of Homer's Odyssey. And in this part of the Odyssey, uh, Odysseus has sailed into a port where there's a cave with two entrances. And inside are um, uh, craters uh, and Craters are like bowls, wooden, wooden or stone, and in this case, they're stone um, bowls. It's what what the word for the craters on the moon is taken from, because they're like bowls in the surface. And in there are amphorae, which are vases used for pouring out libations to the gods and offerings to the dead. And in these are are honey and wine shows up in them. And, and, and so it's a very strange scene. Um, Porphyry says it's, just, it's the cave of the naiads, that these, these spirits, these beings exist there. And he explains that when Homer says that one entrance in the cave is for men and the other entrance is for immortals or gods, he says that this is telling us something about incarnation and excarnation and and how a soul gets into matter and back out of it again and what what he envisaged and largely drawing on pythagoras pythagoras is quoted as saying that all souls before incarnation and after incarnation circle in the milky way and the milky way it intersects at two separate points 
with the ecliptic, with the zodiac wheel. And Plato mentions this. He, it's, they call it Plato's X because he talks about this, how the soul is a miniature of the world soul, the animum mundi. And its shape is an X because it's two circles interlocked that you're seeing from the side. So at these two places where the Milky Way intersects with the Zodiac, there are two openings, two gates. And in one of them, souls enter into incarnation. Um, and the, the way to think about this is, let's say that this is the Zodiac wheel, and we have half of the signs on over here, half of the signs over here. Well, the soul enters and comes through every single sign here, acquiring an essence of that sign, the planet that rules it. And each planet has a pro and a con. Um, Mars might be courage or, or um, manliness, uh, but its con would be ruthlessness. And Venus has beauty and love, but its con might be lust, for example. So as the soul descends through this side, it acquires all of these aspects of a soul and then comes out at the sign here at the bottom. And it's in a body. And Porphyry talks about this, how in the cave there were found um, purple webs and things. And, and he says that this is the blood vessels. This is the body being knitted for the, the soul that's incarnating. And upon death, after going through life, the soul ascends but this time goes up the other side. And as it goes up, it casts off each of these veils, these, these garments that it acquired on its descent. And the, they, they make it the soul heavy, so it falls and falls. But once, as they're taken off, the soul gets light. Very similar to the myth we see to return to the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the myth of Inanna or Ishtar, who descends through seven gates. At each gate, she has to take off one of her articles of clothing until she's finally in Kur, which is their version of Hades, naked. But uh, the, and, and that, that myth most certainly informed the way Porphyry was thinking about this. But once it makes its way back up, again, it reaches this gate and from there, it can get back on the Milky Way and circle. And this importance of circling um, goes back to Plato. Plato, he talked about how all perfect souls are, are spherical. That's the perfect shape. And their perfect action is to move in orbits. And of course, he's thinking about planetary bodies in this case, which for the Neoplatonists were very much gods. They would call them sometimes the visible gods because you could see them. But this is, this is where we get the theory for theurgy. Uh, and the, the whole reason they're practicing it is to try and make that ascent while living before dying. Of course, they'll all go through it when they die, but they wanted to do it while they were alive. And this informed their philosophy. Um, Yomblichus, for instance, he talks about how the soul must go up and come back down over and over throughout life. And man's station, where we are in this 
this hierarchy is essential because we bring that divine essence all the way back down to the bottom of of the chain of what's what's called a syrah, but the great chain of being is what it's what people now would think of this as. But it's a hierarchy of beings with the matter and material humans, animals, plants at the bottom, and at the top is the one, the pege, which means the source of all of it. And again, the the whole goal for Iamblichus is that this has to be done. The whole point is that it has to be done to maintain that connection of matter with spirit. Now, how they did that also goes back to Homer. They use Homeric terms to discuss it. Lots of books have been written on theurgy, but most of them, in an attempt to explain what theurgy was or is, they were using what we know of of magic, largely from the grimoires that came down from Europe in the Middle Ages, and taking those techniques and using traditional Greek religion to kind of fill in the blanks and say that this is what theurgy is. It's not. That's not at all how they thought about it. And we, we don't get a real picture of the ritual, what's called the ritual of elevation, the central rite of the theurgists, which you might call their initiation rite. But again, that doesn't fit because this is a perfection, a, tel- a telestique. Um, we don't get it until two generations down and from Porphyry, we come to Iamblichus, and then we come to a man named Proclus. And Proclus was probably the most uh, prolific, prolific of the Neoplatonists. He wrote extensive commentaries on Plato's works, some of his own works. He wrote a, a commentary on Euclid. But the first time we ever get a description of what the theurgists were doing is in his writings. It's in a, a, a commentary he wrote on Plato's um, uh, Republic, and Plato's Republic. I believe it's in book six. And in this section, he makes a, a detour and gives a commentary on book 23 from Homer's Iliad. And in book 23 is the famous uh, funeral pyre that Achilles performs for his companion Patroclus. Patroclus has been killed and Achilles is overcome with grief and he lays down and falls asleep. And he dreams that the spirit of Patroclus comes to him and basically says, you know, I'm miserable here. I'm stuck in Hades. That should be where all the heroes go. But here I am in Hades. And if you would just get up and perform the ritual, I can get out of here, you know. And immediately Achilles wakes and he realizes, oh, I have to I have to perform this funeral ritual for him. And it turns out to be a funeral pyre. And the first thing he does is throw 12 prisoners of war on this fire and burn them. And in Republic, Socrates, this is how this all came about anyway, because Socrates is saying, well, if we're going to have myths for the youth of Athens, we have to get rid of Homer because he talks about the gods in such a bad way. And he talks about these heroes. He says, just look at Achilles. He He killed 12 men for nothing. And Proclus says, no, 
it wasn't for nothing. It was symbolic, a symbolic part of this ritual, because Plato taught that the gods in that perfect orbit follow one another in a train, a train of gods, each of them in a chariot following Zeus in, in orbit. Well, that's 12 gods. So he, he needs one soul for each god in this ritual. So he, that's the prisoners of war he puts in. He goes to pour out the amphorae and offerings, which are what we saw in that cave from Porphyry's commentary on Homer. And eventually he puts Achilles on this fire. And once, well, let me back up just a little bit. Before he can even get that fire going, because he has trouble lighting it, he makes two invocations to the north and the west winds. Proclus explains these as invocations that have to do with the, the different parts of his soul that he's, he's um, activating, that he's working with uh, outside of the body. He's purifying them through these, this simple act of what on the surface appears like Achilles needs wind to get the fire going. But once he does get it going, he dances around the fire all night long, carrying exactly, again, a crater, just like we saw from the cave. And it's filled with wine. And he has in his other hand what's called the double cup, as it references the double cup. And the double cup is, um, it, it refers to, it references in the Dionysian mysteries. Dionysus drinks from the double cup, they'd say. So he's using this double cup as a kind of ladle and dancing around this fire and pouring cup after cup of wine on this fire from this golden crater. Well, by pouring wine on the flames, naturally they evaporate. He's turning matter into spirit, turning it into air, into pneuma. And Proclus explains, he says that this, this crater represents the fountain of souls. And he's talking about Hecate, because there, there's a verse in the, in the Chaldean oracles where Hecate has this hollow flank, which is a polite way of saying her, her generative region. And from it, souls issue each, each soul. So we have Plato's, basically the equivalent of Plato's anima mundi, the world soul, and from this is portioned individual share of souls to every being that's animated in the world. So this cup that he pours one after another represents the individual soul of Proclus being taken from the, the fount of souls, the anima mundi, Hecate, and poured into this fire and made spirit. And he does this until a certain time. He has a, a signal that indicates to him that the ritual has been done. And what that signal is, is the morning star ascending on the horizon. Once he sees that, he says, ah, the ritual's over. I can rest easy. You know, that he, he's out of Hades and he's going to where all the, the heroes, the Greek heroes are. And he can rest. Well, this ascent of Venus, Venus, long before Mercury, in fact, in the earliest days, they didn't know those were two, star two planets, two stars up there, that Venus and Mercury were separate. 
they were believed to be one planet. But before Hermes was kind of painted as the psychopomp, the ultimate liminal being that can go into Hades and get back out and into the heavens and get back out because nobody could do that. Once you're in Hades, you're in Hades and there's no, no getting out, but that's not true for Venus. Venus was also this psychopompic figure that could pass these liminal boundaries. And it comes from just like we mentioned earlier, Inanna Ishtar, who was identified with the planet Venus so when Venus, it'll appear on the east, and, but unlike the other planets, which continue to follow the ecliptic overhead and set in the west, it will disappear below the horizon and later will appear in the west. This is why it gets called the morning star and the evening star. But in, and in the process, it naturally creates the image of, of like horns. Um, one of the reasons she's commonly associated with the bull, and you see the bull horns on, on Venusian deities, even in Egypt. But for Achilles, this signaled to him that with that planet that can get in and out, that goddess that can get in and out of the underworld, so too did Patroclus' soul go with her and was able to exit Hades, the place no one can get out of. And that's the, the ritual. It's, it's a, so when the, Proclus says that when this ritual is performed on a living person, that's theurgy, that it, it mimics theurgy or that theurgy mimics it. And it, that's exactly what it was, was a, a symbolic death for the person going through it. They'd lie down, they'd be covered there'd be a fire lit at their feet or at their head. And the person, the, the ritualist would do exactly what Achilles did. He would dance around this circle, pouring one cup at a time on this fire all night long, evoking the soul of the dead or of the person undergoing the ritual to exit the body and travel through the heavens. And naturally, Entheogens were very likely employed in these rituals. We, we get a good picture of it in uh, what I mentioned earlier, the Mithras liturgy from the Greek magical papyri, which is another, a similar rite of what's called apothenatismos, of immortalization. And in this one, the, the, the ritualist anoints the face of the person about to go through it with this oil that Hanegraaff and a number of others identify as likely being a hallucinogenic oil that causes the individual to ascend up through the levels of the heavens. And interestingly, this was true for the Christians. We could, we could characterize the earliest Christians as theurgists. When Christianity first emerged, it was a secret society. Everything was very hush-hush. They didn't communicate their mysteries to anyone who wasn't a Christian. And the first picture we get of what Christianity looked like comes from a philosopher named Celsus, who wrote a book called Against the Christians. And in this, he says they have this central ritual of ascent, soul ascent, where they cover the body in what he called the white unguent of the tree of life. And once they do this, they leave 
their body and travel through the seven heavens where they meet a variety of archons, ruler spirits at each planetary heaven. And Origen, the famous early Christian church father, he refuted this. He wrote a huge rebuttal of what Kelsus said. But when it got to the part about this ascent, he didn't say, no, we don't do that. He didn't say, no, we don't cover our bodies in any oil. What he took issue with was that their levels of the levels of heaven presented by Kelsus were out of order. So he, he almost confirms that this ritual is being done. Kelsus just was wrong about the order of the planetary ascent. So that's theurgy. And, and uh, it, it, it was very, very um, tough business. Uh, you, you, you can imagine laying there motionless all night, uh, waiting on the, the, the signal to see the morning star. And we know with the hermetics and the corpus hermeticum, we're given a specific time of year when their ascent ritual was practiced. I believe it's in um, Discourse on the Ogdoad and the Ennead, or Discourse on the Eighth and the Ninth from the Nag Hammadi texts. Well, so too did the theurgists have a specific time, and it would have been when Venus occupies the space in heaven, which qualifies it as the morning star, not the evening star. So the ascent of that, of that goddess leaving the underworld signals that the, the ritual is done, is completed. I think it's fascinating that the Neoplatonists drew on Homer, and I gather that uh, there's some controversy around that, whether Homer would have been aware of these rituals or whether it's simply a projection coming from a a later period. uh, Because as you pointed out earlier, and, and other scholars have, have noted the Homeric world is very different from the world of, of Plato. There's, uh, although the differences sometimes seem to blend, it's, it's, it's not clear how different it is. Like, are the humans in the Homeric world simply the playthings of the gods, or uh, does human character make a difference? Do, are humans in any way in the Homeric world in, in control of their destiny? For example, you're you're absolutely right. They they are very different worlds, and I mean, it, it we can't prove whether or not Homer intentionally code encoded anything into his works. That's beyond our ability to know. But were the Neoplatonists? Um, did they have reason to project these ideas into Homer? I think the the answer is yes. Uh, they were reading it in such a way. You have to think prior to to Homer's epics, there was no no written. This was an oral tradition. It wasn't written down. The moment they began to write down things is the moment scripture could be possible. And that's how they looked at this. They they looked at Homer very much like a Christian or a Jew looks at the Bible as sacred writ. And there's no shortage of, of theories that there are things encoded in the Bible that can't be proven, but seem to be applicable in all variety of scenarios. And and I think that's the that's the way to look at this. The takeaway is is that that Homer 
that they had reason to look for these things in Homer. Whether they're actually there, we can't. We just can't know that. But I do think it's if someone f would prefer to say that the Neoplatonists projected this into Homer, I don't think it detracts from the impact of the theory and the ritual, the practice, personally. I have another question, and I hope you can help untangle it, because in, in this era of third, fourth century, of the uh, what is called the Common Era, you have the Gnostics, you have the Neoplatonists, and you have the Hermetic tradition. And I know they all overlap, but at the same time, I'm pretty sure scholars would agree they're all distinctly different and often opposed to each other. So, to what extent was theurgy practiced not only by the Neoplatonists, but also by the Gnostics and the Hermeticists? It absolutely was. They, they might not have called it that, but we see the same mode of, of soul ascent and the casting off of the veils shows up in, in the uh, uh, Poimendres uh, document, part of the Corpus Hermeticum, very clearly just describe that you you cast off the garment that corresponds to Mars and you lose anger that goes away from the soul and until the soul is finally naked like Ishtar. And in terms of the Gnostics, we see it too. Now famously in Plotinus's Enneads, the his collection of of works, um, he has a chapter in there that's called Against the Gnostics, where he's kind of railing against them for their worldview, what he sees as an incorrect worldview. But all of these guys were influenced by Plato, even when we think about the, the evil demiurge, uh, Yalda Bayeth, of, of some of the Gnostic sects. That whole notion of a demiurge, of course, comes from Plato's Timaeus. It's the being that that creates and animates the world soul, animates all the individual souls, and organizes what's in front of him into something useful and beautiful. And it, it becomes what's described as um, like a theater of the gods is what reality is to him in that dialogue. And it's interesting because Porphyry specifically says that there were Gnostic texts circulating in Plotinus's school. There were Gnostics present. Christians were there in his school. Now, like I said, Plotinus was against the Gnostics, spoke out against the Gnostics. But as this uh, uh, one late scholar, uh, Zeke Mazur, he passed away suddenly um, not too long ago, but he wrote an incredible book that's exploring Plotinus and his precarious relationship to the Sethian Gnostics. And Plotinus was said to have attained this union with the one that the theurgists were doing ritually between two and four times in his life. And at least two of those times, I believe, were in the presence of Porphyry. He saw it happen. And in his Enneads, he explains how to do this, what steps to take. Mazur very meticulously outlines this process he describes, and there's an anomaly. And I, we don't have enough time to go into the anomaly. It would take us another hour. But the, the takeaway is that anomaly 
in his process only makes sense with recourse to certain of the Sethian Gnostics texts. So while he rejected them generally, particularly in practice, he found their methods essential in being successful in the accomplishment of that union with the one. Union is really the wrong way to put it because it's union we think of um, uniting, like almost copulation or something, but this you are the one, you become the one, the, the, the illusion of your body, your ego, your life is, is gone. And you're seeing things as that light that informs everything. But that's what Plotinus claimed to be doing. And Mazur very clearly delineates that this has precedents nowhere else but in Seth Sethian Gnosticism. So they're all related. They're, they're all related um, to Plato. Uh, Plato is really, he, he's the guy we need to point a finger at if we're angry that any of this has taken place because it was his dialogues that really changed the world so much so that it, it, it changed soul orientation. You know, prior to Plato, nobody was going up. They saw that, that the Olympus is for the gods. They just they wanted to go down. They believed wisdom came from down here. Uh, so it, it comes from the dead, essentially. And that's what we get from, by the time we get to Empedocles, uh, he's very clear about the fact that we, we as, a, as a, 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 a practitioner of Goetia, that they take the, the strength of dead men and they can pull it back to the surface. But he says nothing of traveling to the gods. So Plato, Plato changed everything. Well, there are many controversies around this era. Some people would argue that Plato himself represents a corruption of the earlier shamanic tradition that was much more evident amongst the pre Socratic philosophers. Uh, I've also heard that the Neoplatonists could be viewed as an improvement upon Plato. They take Plato's idea of the one and they provide uh, practical means through ritual to achieving the one. Uh, but I've also heard that the Neoplatonists might be viewed as a corruption of the pure focus of Plato on the one. And, and, and that introducing magical rituals was uh, a, a way of a, a devolution of Platonic philosophy, not an evolution of it. But. That, that was the argument of a man named E.R. Dodds, who was an incredible scholar, but he wrote a book called The Greeks and the Irrational. And he was pointing out how these ideas of theurgy are a degradation of the pure rational, logical discourse provided by Plato. But the way they thought about it was that dialectic could only go so far. Reason can only take us so far that the gods transcend reason, transcend ration, rationality. So the moment we run out of words to say, when we've climbed that ladder of dialectic and argument, argumentative form, the next thing has to be ritual, has to be magical, has to be something we're doing to get past it. And what where Dodds saw 
the Neoplatonists as a degradation of Plato, Peter Kingsley, for example, a phenomenal scholar who manages to just impress me with every book he publishes. He's very clear about his view of Plato as being a degradation of what was given to us by Parmenides. And he points out how Plato even says or has this a stranger say in one of his dialogues, we're going to have to kill Father Parmenides. And he points out how patricide in Plato's era was the ultimate sin. That's that there was no sin higher than killing the, the man who, who gave you life. Um, but that's what he says in this kind of joking manner. And he's making it clear that Plato wanted to a be the be seen as the successor of Parmenides rather than people like uh, Zeno and uh, Gorgias. He wanted to be seen as that successor, but he also wanted to outdo him. He wanted to kill him with a new way of seeing the world. And and I, I personally, I don't think as as much as I love Plato, I don't think Kingsley is wrong in that regard that we did lose a lot. We, we lost uh, an ecstatic way of being. Now, granted, Plato did give credence to ecstatic modes of being, the, the four ecstasies or four forms of madness. But he's, when, he, when he says those things, he's only drawing on what took place before in the oracles and with the pre-Socratics. That, that was their bread and butter. You know, he, he was kind of um reappropriating it in a way and we, we might even say he he kind of did a nietzschean kind of transvaluation of some ideas made them mean things they didn't mean prior while using some of the same terms and one might say the same of the neoplatonists sure yeah i think all of these are are great great arguments to be made because they really do represent paradigm shifts. When, when Plato happens, the paradigm completely changes. By the time we get to the Neoplatonists, in their view, the academy, which was run by the so-called Middle Platonists, had fallen to Stoicism and skepticism, which, while useful in their own way, aren't Platonism. And Plotinus saw himself as bringing this back and and doing what Plato was originally doing. Well, it's clear when you read the Enneads, it's a far cry from what Plato was doing. But th this also tells us that just like they were looking at Homer as a kind of scripture, by Plotinus's time, so too were some Platonists looking at Plato as a form of scripture that had double, triple meanings and, and codes embedded in it. And Plotinus really believed what he was doing was what Plato was secretly talking about. So it, it's, it's relevant from every angle, I think, and it's so fascinating. Well, let me ask you one final question, Danny. I know you're an expert on esoteric traditions and on ritual magic as it's been practiced amongst the various offshoots of Freemasonry. To what extent would you say that the Neoplatonic vision of theurgy is still being practiced today? 
by the various groups that engage in ceremonial magic? I think the clearest survival of that mode of thinking and acting was with uh, a man named Martinez de Pascali, who founded a, a, a high, the, really the first high degree system of Freemasonry um, called the Elu Cohen. And the Elu Cohen of, officially died out and, and people stopped practicing this and his, his ideas began to be channeled into what, what is now called Martinism based on uh, the teachings of Louis Claude de Saint Martin. But the Martinists still keep this alive. The, this Martinism as such is a three degree system that, that would be very recognizable to Freemasons. It's not Masonic. They let, they admit women, uh, they do a lot of things differently, but Masons would recognize what's happening. But once you get past that third degree in Martinism, just like in Masonry, you get past the third degree and the York Rite opens up to you and the Scottish Rite opens up to you and the Shrine opens up to you. The same is true of Elu Cohen and Martinism. It, it still survives and it is very much a, a theurgic system that partakes of also of the grimoire tradition, particularly the Abramelin tradition of contacting your holy guardian angel and and then using that connection to in turn reach down and sort of redeem lower spirits, what we might call demons, to, to say, you get in line with me, I'm in line with the angel, you get in line with me, and we're all golden. You you get a chance to be good for a little while. And and it, it, that's the way it survives largely um, is is through that that tradition which Bremlin isn't theurgy but that has crept into the way they do theurgy but they, I would say that uh, Elu Cohen is the closest thing that survives to this day that that is actually like that now that's not to say that there aren't individuals scattered around who are still putting other individuals through this rite of elevation because that certainly survives. And there are plenty of people who are working with the Greek magical papyri and which includes the Mithras liturgy, so-called, which is again, a, a rite of apothanatismos, an ascent and immortalization ritual. And it's been argued. And I, I think it's, it's pretty spot on that the liturgy, and the Orthodox Christian Church, the liturgy is arguably a form of theurgy, of making the eternal present in the now and participating in that. So I think that's a, there's a good argument for that. Yeah. Well, I would say it's very likely that in in the third fourth century there would have been intermingling of uh, neoplatonists with orthodox christians saint dionysius the areopagite in particular clearly was reading proclus and even uses terms he would only find there and he refers to the liturgy and to christ's miracles as acts of theurgy and we have, there's a Gregory of Nyssa who wrote The Life of Moses, 
clearly was reading the Neoplatonists. And that's really the big difference between the early Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church that broke away from Orthodoxy and the Schism of 1054, whereas the Orthodox Church Fathers, they were very much making recourse to Plato and to the Neoplatonists, whereas the Catholic Church, and especially the Protestants, because uh, uh, um, Martin Luther could not stand Dionysius the Areopagite. He thought that his his way of communicating was was too grandiose and it really meant nothing. But what what Dionysius the Areopagite, and I believe the fifth century, he's an Orthodox saint. What he's describing is theurgy par excellence. So there was definitely some crossover. I hope you can refresh my memory. I'm not really a, as much a student of this historical era as you obviously are, but didn't Dionysius the Areopagite write about the hierarchies of angels? That's right, celestial hierarchies, which is considered by modern ceremonial magicians to be the earliest, if not one of the earliest grimoires. He provides the framework that informs all the later work. And, and his, his, he has another very small uh, text called Mystical Theology. I, I, would, I would challenge any Christian, Jew, Buddhist, Hindu to read that and not see in it a, a, a a clear reflection of the highest echelons of each of these religious views, these world views. What he's talking about is, is transcending the self, transcending intellectuality itself, and entering this dark brilliance where the highest God must exist. Because we, we, if we say it, it, it is something, we've immediately limited it to that. We're talking about something that transcends being but informs all being and you you get great descriptions of things like that and especially in buddhist texts but this is a fifth century orthodox christian describing inner practice in a way that it just it moves me it's one of my all-time favorite texts it does seem to me important to emphasize that the goal of theurgy, union with the divine, ultimately, is, is the goal of mysticism everywhere. That's right. Mysticism and, and magic. People like to make a distinction between high magic and low magic, but the real goal is to connect with something beyond yourself. What you choose to call that thing that's up to you, up to your tradition. But in the end, you're absolutely right. That's the goal, is to, to, to get outside of ourselves, get ourselves out of our own way, and really experience the world as it is, not as we wish it were. Well, Danny Newman, what a pleasure to converse with you once again. This has been a, a joy and it's been a wealth of information. I'm delighted to be with you and I look forward to future conversations as well. Likewise, Jeffrey. So good to see you. I agree. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you because you are the reason that we are here. Thank you.
imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.